Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that I broadcast on unceded sovereign lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to elders past and present, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by wonderful local poet Harry Reid, who has just published a chapbook called The Best Way to Destroy an Enemy is to Make Him a Friend. That one is out now through Puncher and Watman. And I'll be joined by founder and editorial director of Jed Press, Hala Ibrahim, to speak about their 2021 editorial mentorship program. Now, if you don't know Jed, they are a wonderful online publication that exclusively work with pub, uh, work and publish black creatives and other creatives of colour with the main purpose to address the insufficient representation of marginalised peoples within the Australian literary landscape today. They've also just celebrated their fourth birthday, so I'm so excited to be chatting to Hella and Harry. The Best Way to Destroy an Enemy is to Make Him a Friend is the brand new poetry collection from local poet Harry Reid. It's part of the Slow Loris series and it's out now through Puncher and Watman. Harry joins me on the line now. Harry, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a bloody pleasure. It's been so good delving into your words. Um, I thought we could start with a reading. Absolutely. Um <clears throat> This is one that you picked. Thank you, Beth. Uh, It's called uh, Beach Boys Medley. Might post a link. Might post a screenshot. Might retweet this video. You guys have got it all wrong and I'd know. I'm on my phone all day. This protest seems good, but I'm sus on the organisers. There's a few photos of me from the ninth grade that would disqualify any run for office. The problem is we're all little freaks. The problem is we're too risk-adverse. The problem is a chore. The problem lies primarily at the feet of disinterested government bodies. We are listening to the Beach Boys. We have just discovered pet sounds. Why can't things be like the 60s? No, not that. I didn't mean like that. The problem would be halfway solved by a more equitable distribution of available funding. The problem has been theorised by philosophers. The problem with philosophers is they're all pussies. We will not be writing poems until commissioned to do so. I've written a Pet Sounds poem. Would you like to read it? The problem with poems is who are they for? Baby comes into her own. Says, why won't all you artists just shut up? Something comes across my screen and there's the morning. Getting heavy. We want everyone sacked. Of course we do. Little sister starts to get it and loses it again. You can't just pivot away from this. You've got to forget it. If you could go anywhere taking into account current and historical circumstances, where would you go? Finland? Ah, wait, fuck. I'm flying off the handle trying to put this new bin together. I heard you moved in and broke up. I heard he's still living there. I heard you found a way to circumvent local council rates through a series of tenancy law loopholes. I find it hard to believe you hadn't considered the dichotomy of us and sleeping together. You even moralised this breakfast. 
Why is everything flat-packed these days? Another strike against Scandinavia, that and the hockey. Yeah, sorry, just hold on, I've got another call coming through. Movers will be here in the morning and the car's still out back waiting on approval from the insurance company. Yeah, ACAB, ACAB, with my claims tied up in a current investigation, I can't do anything about it. The kid was driving without a licence and was out on bail, drove to the tow yard with her dad to break out the wreckage, the whole time talking ACAB, ACAB. Yeah, look, just a minute, sorry, it's the RSCV again. Three in the morning, the officer taking my statement kept talking about the Joker movie. The problem is I keep thinking about it. The problem is there's only so many times you can run up against punitive bureaucratic systems. I can't even read anymore. I'm just glazing over the screen. The problem is we all know what to do, but it's so much work. Do you want to read my Caroline No poem? Did you see that video from the Seattle protest? What do you want for dinner? Yeah, send it to me. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah, yeah, whatever you want. Thank you. That is Harry Reid uh, reading there from The Best Way to Destroy an Enemy is to Make a, uh, make Him a Friend. Um, thank you so much for that reading, Harry. I think to start with, you know, this is what I believe is your first kind of collection of work and you also run a monthly poetry reading night called Sick Leave. I'd love to know what got you first interested in poetry as a form. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of a bit like... Incidental, I guess. I went to, I was in, when I was in high school, I was like very much thought that I wanted to do acting and like writing stage and screenplays. And then I got to uni and I decided that that was actually garbage and I was rubbish at it and I didn't like it. Uh, and I had a very short attention span. Um, and so I just started reading poetry, I guess, when I was like 18, 19 and had a few, I don't know, met a few people that were into it and had a few good tutors, I guess, that kind of steered me in a direction towards, like, Gig Ryan, John Forbes, and I guess something just kind of clicked, and I was like, ah, yeah, okay, this is what I'm actually interested in. And then I just, yeah, I guess kept going from there. And tell me about this uh, this new collection. I suppose when you were writing this, what kind of ideas were you thinking about at the time? Like, how did this one come together? Um, I got asked by Chris, who commissioned the Slow Laura series, to be a part of, the, of it the year before. Um, and I said no because I thought I was on to some big, serious manuscript that turned out to be garbage. So I kind of turned it down to focus on my big garbage manuscripts. But then he asked me again and it had come at a point where I had <laughs> like scrapped this all this work that I'd been doing. Uh, so I kind of stripped that manuscript for parts and I think I salvaged maybe two or three poems that are in the chapbook. And then uh, kind of fortuitously my work was like, you have too much annual leave. You have to take two weeks off. And so I was like, okay. And then the chapbook was due. So I just kind of went, I don't know, I had two weeks at home where I just kind of went ballistic and just wrote poems all day, every day, which was beautiful. Um, so it was a bit of a frenzy. But I think, I don't know, incidentally, I think kind of accidentally, a lot of the poems are just about my misses. 
It's beautiful. I absolutely love all of the writing about love. It just truly melted me. Um, you know, there are. I was. I was wondering if it was written last year because there are some really, I suppose, overarching themes in this poem of like domesticity and labour and capitalism, but also, I suppose, on the flip side, this love that you that you talk about that kind of seems to kind of hold you in place, like it does everyone. Um, you know, just that sense of really being at home a lot and kind of being overwhelmed by the news. Like I love in that poem the kind of the way that you speak about, uh, you know, kind of, was it in that poem where you're talking about like the Seattle protest, but then also what do you want for dinner? Because we have to hold uh, this complexity at the same time. And we're kind of in a world where we are just oversaturated with information. And I just got that real sense for me, just like reading these poems, I was like, this really feels like I relate to this. This feels like last year. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, you know, I mean, firstly, because they were written last year, what do you feel like those kind of writing conditions meant for for you and your work? Um, yeah, I mean, the it was, I think it was, uh, most of it was written in June last year. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, so like deep in the kind of big strict lockdown, um, June, July. So yeah, definitely um, kind of a big nervous <laughs> lockdown erratic theme throughout it. Mm. Um, I don't know. It was. I don't think it was like very conducive. I like. I'm trying to. I've been trying to write a big other collection for like I would say about two years now. And last year I thought I would get a lot done because I was at home all the time, and I really didn't. Um, I don't know. I think. It's good. I think it's good for a while, the uh, kind of domestic theme. But then, it's like anything. I think if you're in it for too long, it's the well runs dry eventually. Mm. Um, which is kind of how I felt about after I finished this chapbook. I was like, okay, I'm gonna be on to the next project, and I don't think I wrote anything for about three months afterwards. Mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I think that's a really interesting, I suppose, way that this came together of just having that really intense writing period. And I suppose what that, I don't know, says about the way that you work or, as you said, kind of the well drying up afterwards. It was just an incredibly stressful year as, as everybody kind of experienced and it kind of comes through in these poems. And I, yeah, I just think that's really interesting. Um, Harry, there are so many, there's so much humour in this collection. You are very funny. Um, I, I just love how you kind of, you know, you speak about latte art in the same breath as the housing market. There's, you know, that one of the lines in those, the poem that you just read was uh, talking about how a few photos of you in the ninth grade would disqualify you from running for office. Um, you know, there's just all these really great nuggets of humour. I'm interested in how you think humour can be used as a tool for writing about the self. That's a good question. Um, I think, I think just personally as a reader, I've always gravitated towards uh, writing, not even just poetry, but I think just writing generally that has a bit of a lighter side. Um, I guess poetry in particular, I think it works... I think it works really well to kind of disarm a reader somewhat and can be used as like, I mean, it's almost like a, a trick, I think, like a good, like a funny line is almost like a trick 
to put someone off and then like hit them with something serious. It doesn't have to be all the time. Sometimes a funny poem can just be a funny poem. But I think some of the best poets, or my favourite poets, like Forbes and Ara, are the ones that, like, they're all like they're just funny as well. Mm. I mean, I think, and also I think there's a there's a bit of a rich history of funny Australian poets, which I like to kind of think that I'm carrying on. Mm. Um, but yes, poetry's too poetry as a form, I think, is too silly to take itself <laughs> seriously. Mm. Like it's, I don't know, it's a ridiculous little thing to be a poet, and it's like you know, I mean, the whole thing is a gas. You make no money. The pleasure of poetry is just the kind of you know sheer like nothingness of it it's writing you know writing it on the clock it's very kind of like I don't know why you would write poetry for any other reason that it's fun to do like mm. you're not going to make any money out of it you're not going to ch- change the world with it but it's like it's lovely it's beautiful so i don't know i think it's silly and fun so like poetry should be more i don't know it should be more reflective of that i love what you're saying because i feel like during these poems there is this real sense of self-awareness of this of the act of writing you kind of often break that fourth wall and bring us into almost the construction of the poem by questioning poetry's place and you know i think there's lines like, you know, the problem with poems is who are they for? And, yeah, I, I, for me it kind of almost showed this poetry as, you know, a way of being and a lifestyle as, a, you know, as opposed to maybe just something that you do. Does that feel true to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, Frank Gareth Morgan, who has another book in this Slow Laura series called Dear Eileen, which is like a series of letters he wrote to Eileen Miles, the American poet, mm. um, about being a postie. I think he gets it really well. He hits a nail on the head there in that collection where he, it's all kind of poems on the clock of him like riding the bike around town. And I think that's the kind of, for me, like, yeah, that's the total, total glory of it. It's not something that like, I don't know. No one's ever going to be a full-time poet <laughs> anymore. Like, that dream is over. We're all, you know, working nine-to-fives or, like, riding delivery-do bikes. So, like, might as well write a poem, you know, on your lunch break, on the stop-off, and kind of then that becomes, yeah, part of... I don't know if, like, poetry is a lifestyle, but I think you kind of... The form of it, how you can write little quick snatches of it, and you know, sometimes a poem can be a chore, but mm. sometimes it can happen in 20 minutes. Mm. And so, you can kind of like envelope it into every day, which I think is the beauty of it. It's not something that you necessarily have to sit down <clears throat> and type out and bring out, you know your 100-page work in progress and, like, get back into the headspace of where you left off, you can just write a little notes app poem on your phone when you're on the tram, mm. which rocks. Yeah. It's so nice to think about writing poetry, like, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe lifestyle isn't the right word, but just, I suppose, a lens in which you, like, view and then express 
the world back to us, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Harry Reid all about their wonderful poetry chapbook called The Best Way to Destroy an Enemy is to Make Him a Friend. Um, Harry, there's this real sense of, um, I suppose, like existential questions about how we spend our time finding meaning in life um, and what you kind of touched on before of this like great love, this big love. Um, there's some really powerful lines in this that absolutely broke me. Um, you know, a house is just a house until you step through it. Uh, you talk, what is it you say? Um, I look at you and I think what a perfect half hour would feel like and how this is probably it. I was like, you, you know, you write so precisely and so generously about these really tiny moments that really make a life, all of these kind of bits. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, I suppose, if that's something that you think about when you're writing, all of this kind of like the granular detail um, of life and how, that, how you think about that in your writing. Yeah, I guess so. I'm, I don't know, I feel like a bit of a fraud sometimes when I'm talking about it because I guess I don't really intellectualise that process like too much um, when it's happening. Um, I guess, I don't know, the, like the things that I do are the things that I can write about or, you know, and I'm not someone that thinks <clears throat> you can only write what you know or, you know, and it's like a fraudulent to write anything else, but... I don't know, I spend 40 hours a week, five days, you know, out of the seven of my week at work. So work comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, especially, you know, last year, but even kind of generally, then the lion's share of that other time I spend, you know, at home with my girlfriend. So, like, she's in there a lot. <laughs> And then, I don't know, the rest of the time is I'm at the pub. So the pub's in there, like, a bit. So, <laughs> like, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess those are the things that kind of dominate my time. So I spend a lot of time thinking about them. And I guess they just kind of, feel, I don't know, they just kind of creep in. They kind of creep in there. Work, I think, is something that I've put a lot of thought into and labour and capital. And that kind of maybe is more reflective in my work in like a serious way. Mm -hmm. Or that's something that like gets in there by me thinking hard about it. But I don't know. Sometimes I'm sitting in the backyard drinking a glass of wine with my girlfriend and I'm like, this is it. This is poetry, baby. Like... Mm -hmm this is everything and then you know it just kind of creeps in there well it does in a really beautiful way and I just absolutely love re reading about it it's, it's so joyful and stunning I love it um Harry I'm interested when you're talking about I suppose just the the task of of writing about yourself and about your world and I suppose how honest like how you kind of negotiate being how deciding how honest you are and how much of yourself you kind of um, expose through your work when you kind of are writing about stuff that is, you know, sometimes quite close to the bone. Mm. How do you feel about that? Man, that's a good question. Um, I, there's definitely like uh, a, I think there's definitely like a speaker or there's, you know, like there's me and then there's like Harry Reid, the poet or the speaker of the poem or whatever 
which, you know, are like 95% the same person. But I think you're, yeah, you're right. There's moments where things get dicey and sometimes I don't want to show my ass too much. <laughs> but I kind of, you know, but those dicey things are the things that you kind of end up really wanting to talk about. Mm. Um, so I think it's easy uh, for me to write and kind of know that maybe there's a bit of a remove or that, you know, the Harry Reid that's on the front cover of the book is maybe not 100% like me. Mm. And so you can kind of, I don't know, keep it at an arm's distance. But it's tricky. I don't really... I don't really know. I think maybe there's a few things in there where I... (laughs) Like, I think I'm telling on myself a bit too much. Whether or not people pick it up, Mm. I guess there's a difference in completely because people don't know, you know, like everything or whatever but I think I don't know I have a tendency to maybe tell myself a little bit too much but I think if you are uh, I think you if you can have like a if it's funny or if it's like I don't know I'm a big believer in rat baggery if you can be a bit of a rat bag generally then people just think that you're a rat bag and so you can kind of tell on yourself a little bit too much and everyone just thinks it's like silly and charming where actually (laughs) you're like maybe pointing something you know like a little bit more serious or whatever but if it's cloaked in the kind of aura of being a total rat bag Mm. you can kind of get away with it a bit more I think yeah absolutely and I think yeah it's an interesting one as well because I think it's perhaps something that's never resolved and that's probably a constant negotiation in your work and I mean just the work of any writer um Harry, this is a chapbook that is, as you kind of alluded to before, a part of a larger series. Can you tell me, I suppose, what it means for your work to be positioned in this way? Um, it's, a, it's been a funny one. The one that, so I run sick leave with my friends Gareth Morgan and Ursula Robinson Shaw. Ursula was in the last series I was supposed to be in, but I said no because I was a moron. And then Gareth was in this one, this collection, Series 3. So it's pretty nice to be published alongside, you know, my two friends that I run this thing with. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I like to think of us as, like, carving out our own little kind of pocket of the scene. So it means a lot to be published alongside Gareth and Ursula, actually. Um, I'm also published alongside Duncan Hose, who's in this series, who was my honours supervisor. So that is very funny to be published in a series alongside him. Mm. Uh, and then who are the other ones? One, Ruvan Rebez and Brianna Bullen, um, both fantastic poets who had only met on the launch date. Um, they were both very lovely. Uh, So I didn't really know their work, but I do now, which is kind of, you know, like an absolute bonus of being published in a series. Mm. I think it's great. I mean, you know, I'm all for forging community. I guess that's what we've been doing with Sickly for the last, like, two, three years. Mm. And, like, finding, you know, connections across little different pockets of the lit scene or the poetry scene generally. Um, It's up in Newcastle, Puncher and Watman, so it was... 
interesting to work with a publisher that wasn't Victorian. They want me to get up to Newcastle, but I simply can't afford it. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It was quite, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. I haven't really thought much about it other than it was just like a sheer delight to share a launch date with mm. my friends. And Gareth was there and Duncan came up from Hobart and, you know, like that was lovely. Mm. So beautiful. Eh? There's so many... Um there's so many books that I need to check out from the series and it, yeah, it's been a pleasure reading your work and yeah, Harry, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, that's okay. Thank you so much for having me on. A pleasure. We were just chatting there with Harry Reid, talking all about the new chat book, The Best Way to Destroy an Enemy is to Make Him a Friend. It is out now through Puncher and Whatman. You're on Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Jed Press is an online publication that exclusively works with and publishes black creatives and other creatives of colour with the main purpose to address the insufficient representation of marginalised people within the Australian literary landscape today. They have a new editorial mentorship available for emerging editors and joining me to speak about it today, we have Jed founder and editorial director, Hala Ibrahim. Hey, Hala, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Always uh, a pleasure having you on. Um, firstly, I do want to say a massive congrats. Um, it's Jed's fourth birthday. That is just <laughs> such an amazing achievement. Um, you know, I saw that you tweeted uh, that years ago, David Riding from the Melbourne City of Literature Office asked um, where you hoped Jed would be within five years and you hoped that it would be obsolete, um, hoping that, you know, you wouldn't need identified spaces for black, indigenous people of colour in the arts. Um, mm-hmm. You said that it seems naive of you now, but you're still holding out hope that that's where we'll get one day. Um, as I, as am I, I, I mean, I'd love to just reflect on, I suppose, the last four years of Jed, what it's been like for you, what, what changes you have seen or what have you, what have you seen stayed the same? That's a really good question. Hey, like, I was thinking about it. Um, and by the way, the reason I said it seems naive of me is just because I'm like, why did I think structural change would happen in five years? Mm. Like, we've been, you know, fighting the same, the same fight and we've been saying the same things for decades. And I, I do think it was a bit naive of me, to, uh, like, four years ago to be like, well, I hope Jed will be redundant because, I, I mean, I don't want to keep doing this. Mm. <laughs> or, or, like, I love doing what I do, but... The you know the reason for it, like the having to carve out, like force out some space just so we can, you know, be read and be heard and all of that. Um, I don't, the last four years has been such a wild ride. Um, like just me personally, I've learned a lot because um, I've been in the industry in editing and publishing for about ten years. Um, and over the last few years, I have to say, like for all that, I'm, for all that, there is still quite a bit wrong with the industry, um, and there's we're still having to deal with crappy authors who get published by crappy, like, publishing houses or websites or whoever. But I have to say, there has been, I have seen a lot of improvement. Like, you can see writers' festivals taking, starting to listen, starting to program, uh, I hate the word diversity, but for the sake of brevity, more diverse voices. Mm. Um, You know, we're getting more opportunities. People are starting to actually look around and say, hey, there is a gap here 
how do we fill it? And, you know, other other places have done um, different mentorships or have, um, you know, writing prizes that are, again, identified with the idea of, again, carving out some space and showing that there is so much talent out there. There's so much talent, and a lot of that talent goes to waste because there's just, like, where's the platform, where's the space, who's giving you an opportunity? Mm-hmm. Um, it has been, yeah, it's been, so it's been an interesting four years. Like, I, I think, not to not to sound bragging up myself, but, like, I think I have, we have, like, at Jed, I think we have managed to affect some change. And I think working in tandem with other publications doing the same thing, like, I often tell Leah Jingvis, um, who mm-hmm. is the founder um, of Liminal, that, Liminal's doing amazing work, and I'm so grateful to be working alongside such, you know, staunch, hardworking, like, people who are really trying to, like, change, make a change. And it's just, it's a good feeling mm. knowing that there are other people out there just, you know, we're all pushing for the same thing, and it's working. It's working. So that's, that's been quite a joy. Absolutely. And you should absolutely step into your power because Jed is, has been pushing the boundaries for four years and it's been doing incredible work. Same as you said, Liminal. There are so many other kind of independent uh, collectives and publications that have kind of come up out of this frustration with our, you know, our current arts landscape. You know, I did want to pick up on something you said, which was um, you thought it was naive of you to kind of hold out hope that it would happen in five years. But there's also a part of me that thinks that that hope and that optimism is so essential to the work that you do because, you know, you just wouldn't get anywhere if you didn't think uh. that it was possible. Um, uh. Is Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, I suppose, how that optimism shifts or change whilst you're kind of in there doing the work day in, day out. It's a, I, I imagine <laughs> that that's kind of keeps you sane a bit. Yeah, it's... Look, this is tiring and frustrating work, and it seems like every time we try to do something new, we get a new barrier thrown in our face, or, you know, we get a little win here and then a huge loss there, you know, or not a huge loss, but, uh, I mean, I don't want to be naming places, but, like, I mean, I'll name Cinefix Press as just, like, the turkey, like, crap show that it is. So it's like, we do one good thing here, and then... Benefix, like, publishes another turf, and it's just, it's just frustrating. Or, like, more, you know, we get, like, uh, uh, to use a usual example, white people still writing our stories for us mm. um, or trying to speak for us. And it's like, actually, we're perfectly capable of doing it. Um, but I think hope is, a, it is an essential ingredient, and I don't mean to sound very natural or anything, but it is, it is what's kept me going a lot of the time because, you know, I mean, Financially, mostly, the, the financial burden of Jed mostly falls on me. And, you know, it's, so that's one element that's just, like, a constant pain point. There's so much organization. This, um, actually, a couple of days ago, um, it was our birthday, but it was also two days later, I, um, the anniversary of the managing director, Rafif Ismail, coming on board. And having Rafif on board has just made such a huge difference in what we've been able to do because I'm only one person, you know? And so having that kind of support. Um, but the hope, yeah, the, the hope that things can get better. And I, because you can see it. You can see, as I said, you do get the wins and they do keep you hopeful. And I said this, I think, in 2018 at um, a Melbourne Writers Festival event, but I um, decided years ago that to have hope meant to take action. And that's just what I've t- 
try to stick to. So anytime I start to feel like I'm losing hope or that everything is just a bit like, what's the point of doing this? Like, what's the point of trying this hard? I'm like, you know what? If you're losing hope, do something new. Mm. Try something else. Take a different action. See what happens. And like, not everything works, you know, like I make mistakes. Like we're human. We make mistakes. And some things fail miserably, I drop the ball somewhere, or something just doesn't work out the way you thought, or, you know, things go wrong. And so it's like, okay, you took an action, it didn't work. To, to, to keep, like, the hope alive, mm-hmm. keep the hope that you can affect change and that things don't, like, the world doesn't have to be the way it is, you know what I mean? Where it's like, mm-hmm. we're just, I refuse to sit back and just accept the world the way it is. And I think it is really important that for me personally, Hope means to me taking an action, like whatever it is, it little, big, you know. It's the same thing with, like, I guess, global warming. Like, yes, you can go out and plant an acre of trees, and that's amazing. But you can also do little things, like that cigarette butt that you were going to throw on the ground, chuck it in the bin. That's mm. a little action, and it, and it, it, it makes a difference. Mm. Um, so that's been my thing for, I think, a really long time. And it's definitely something that... You- you know, we can see through your work at Jed, like the tangible action that is very clear is not only obviously publishing um, people of colour and um, black creatives, but also through the mentorship and kind of the fostering of the the next gen that you've been doing, um, you know, ever since you kind of founded Jed. I'd love to know, mm-hmm. I suppose, just in terms of that fostering the, you know, emerging uh, writers and editors, what, what have you learnt through that kind of process? <laughs> Well, my first lesson was don't try to take on 10 uh, people at once. It's too much to manage, and you will not do a good job if you're the only one working on it. So that's uh, that's something I learned. So it's like uh, being aware of my own capacity and what Jed, Jed's capacity as well. So I, I often talk about Jed as if it's me. Um, but now that there are, like, we do have, like, different, like, you know, we've got a managing, managing director, we've got different people doing different things. Um, uh, but, yeah, so kind of taking a step back and saying, like, look, I want to do, we want to do all of these things, and there's, like, we've got amazing plans, but be realistic about our capacity. And I think that's why Jed has survived this long. It's just I've always tried to be realistic, where it's like, you know what, we're not going to publish this year. We simply can't afford it, or there's a lot of logistical issues, but we're doing other work behind the scenes. Mm. And that's, um, you know, we've always said Jed is a publishing platform second and a community collective first. Our, like, what we're trying to do is, like, support the community. And whether that's supporting them through publication or supporting them through mentorship or supporting them through, like, you know, somebody sends us a quick message on social media and we answer it for them or connect them or, like, you know, putting people in jobs and all of that. So it's, it's, it's really about the, I guess, holistic look, um, look at it because it's not enough to just publish something and then, like, and not do any of the work around it. And that's actually, yeah, kind of how the editorial mentorship um, came up. Um, because I was, I've actually been talking to somebody who was doing, who mentioned that they were doing, um, uh, there was some school in Turtle uh, um, Island that does scholarships. And I was like, oh, I wish I could offer scholarships. And just through that conversation, I was like, actually, I don't need to offer a scholarship. What I can, but I, like, I, I don't have the capacity, sorry, to, to offer a scholarship. But I do have capacity to offer something else. Like, there is something that I can do here. And it's been such a point of frustration for me how uh, editors in, in the industry, like, firstly, there's just not nearly enough editors of color, right? Like, just not. Like, we're doing better on the writing. Like, we're getting more authors of color. They're getting more space. That's amazing. But editors of color is still a gap, right? Mm-hmm. Um 
And, uh, you know, you, and again, looking at the, like, the big picture of it, it's like, okay, but why is this a gap? And I'm like, well, you know, and there's, and then the other aspect was like, even the editors that we have now, how well are they trained? Like, I've been, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I am just so sick of working with crap editors, and I'm so sick of seeing the results of crap editing work, and like, and again, I'm trying not to mention any specific places, because so many of them are litigious. But, like, I'm, like, a lot of the issues that we deal with um, as, like, people of color or that, you know, black and first, Na- black and first nations people deal with um, in this industry, uh, it just wouldn't happen if, the, if editors were actually trained properly. And I'm just looking around at, like, you know, who's, who's teaching these editors? How are they learning? What information do they lack? And it's like, okay, like, and not to say that I know everything, but I'm like, I did a formal degree. I have, a, like, a you know, relatively good overview of most things. And for specialist knowledge, like, I know enough people that I can tap on the shoulder and be like, hey, could you help me train somebody? And I'm like, even if it's just, like, one well-trained, like, editor of color, that would, like, even if we only produce one good editor of color, that's one more we've got in the industry. That's one less, you know, one less issue we have to deal with. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, I think you're you're doing that so well. I'm just looking at the course and you've got so many, you know, wonderful, amazing industry professionals that are kind of jumping on board to help. You've got Evelyn Araluen, mm-hmm. Adolfo Aranjuez, uh, Tressa Leclerc, Khalid, um, you know, like what a stellar mm-hmm. lineup. It just seems like such a wonderful opportunity for somebody to kind of grow and learn. I, I suppose if there is anybody listening right now and they're thinking of, you know, putting their hat in the ring for the editorial mentorship program what kinds of things are you are you looking for? Mm. So I would say first and foremost, I am looking for somebody who understands that editing is not about them, right? Mm-hmm. So I like have said to somebody, okay, oh, I am not on the selection committee. I've literally designated. I've selected some people to do the selecting because I am far too biased. Um, but I did have a quick skim through, and it's like there is uh, editing is about supporting somebody else's work, right? And it's for me, it's about who knows how to decenter themselves. It's also the element of, like, having a good sense of social justice, like having a good sense of what's right and wrong, what's ethical and what's not. And, again, we will cover that in the, in the training program, but having that natural kind of, like, you don't have to be trained in it, but, it's, you know, just having a, a general sense of it. Um, I'm also, and this I've had to, uh, I've had to like say outright, I am not looking for writers who want to edit. Sometimes I'm looking for people who are like editors. If you write, you write. Like that's that's fine. But really, editing and writing have a lot of crossover in terms of skill sets and all of that. But editing is a beast of a different kind, basically. And so I'm really looking for somebody who is serious about editing itself, not looking for a way to improve their writing. Um, as I said, we do have a writer's program that I should have announced at some point this week, but, you know, um, <laughs> time gets away from you. Um, there will be a writer's program being announced um, at the end of the week, hopefully, if not early next week. Um, and so I've been saying, like, save your writer applications for them. What I'm looking for here is somebody who is, you know, naturally curious, you know, has a bit of, like, uh, likes to think outside themselves. How, how we're going to pick that from applications is still a question, but, again, I'm not doing the selecting. So that is for the selection committee to decide. I mean, it looks like such a, a great program, and I'm very excited to hear about the writing program as well. But, you know, I suppose just with this editorial mentorship program, you really kind of 
are trying to address a lot of um, different types of, you know, editing for different forms, for nonfiction, for fiction, yeah. for poetry. Um, I suppose, can you tell me a little bit more about the, the course itself? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking when I was putting it together, what would be useful for an editor to know? Because there's, there's a lot of topics that I could have added. And I, I have set some of them up as kind of additional, like if you want to know about this, let us know and we uh, I can set up a session. But I'm trying to really get to the heart of like what you would need to know, you know, what you would need to have an overview of. And so... And also what I, again, thinking about judge capacity, like I'm not going to offer um, a course on news writing because Jed doesn't publish news. Um, it's not something we do. I couldn't offer you, like I couldn't give you anything to practice on, so on and so forth. Um, so it's, it's for, I guess, uh, you know, staying in, our, staying in our lane, basically covering the topics we cover, um, but also really trying to, again, look at the big picture. What might you need to know or what might be good for you to improve skills on? Like, not everyone is going to want to edit poetry, but poetry is one of the ones where it's like finding a good poetry editor is hard and not a lot of people feel very confident with poetry. And so it's like, this is something you would need to know. Um, same with the language intensive with Adolfo, um, where it's like, okay, so, you you know, you're... You've been writing for this long, and now you've decided to become an editor and all of that. But do you know basic, like, and and again, it, without meaning to sound, um, well, I don't know what I would sound like, but I have noticed that there are quite a few people in the arts in general who like don't have don't have a strong language foundation. Um, which isn't to say that their English isn't good per se. It's just you need to have an understanding of how language rules work to be able to play with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like knowing how to use a serial comma, knowing the difference between an M dash and an N dash, again, this is specialist knowledge, which is not really interesting, I guess, for people who aren't doing it. But as an editor, like if you're going to throw out a grammar rule to write a, you know, interesting postmodernist piece or whatever, you need to actually know what the rules are. And so that's, so it's kind of that, like it's, it's training for somebody who's interested in this but doesn't have the skills yet. And, yeah, and then the, the outside of the intensives, um, and this is where I really, like, <laughs> I mean, personally, I got excited and proud of myself for, like, putting them in, but I'm, like, sorry to say it, but ethics really should be taught, like, as just as part and parcel mm -hmm. of any, I mean, any industry. Yeah. Um, like, I did a journalism ethics class in my undergrad, and it was my favorite, it was my favorite subject, and it really broadened my thinking, and it really, like, changed my perspective, and I'm, like, Again, I really feel like we'd have fewer issues in, in the publishing industry in the art spaces if ethics were taught. If you were told from the get-go, here's what's generally like okay and what's not, and here's, you know, gray areas and all of that. And then the uh, same with the last one, with um, the MEAA and your rights that work with Marissa. Um, mm. Again, like, I went through 10 years not understanding what my rights at work were, and I, like, Honestly, copped a lot of things that I don't think I would have put up with had I known that, you know, it was illegal or it was, it constituted bullying and harassment or employer, like, if I understood what my employer obligations were. And I see a lot of young editors, like, going into these fun and exciting, you know, they're working with this interesting mag or they've got, like, they're doing some editing here. And I'm like, okay, but do you know what they can ask you for and what they can't. Do you know how much work you should be doing and how much you do, like, and I'm not saying every employer, every, like, you know, everyone in the art space is out to get you, but honestly, there, like, Jed started because of the culture of, like, unpaid and underpaid, like, um, internships and, and work, and it's like, 
that's not really how workplaces should be run. And if we, if we were all collectively educated about that, it would be a lot harder for people like higher ups in art spaces to be taking this much advantage of the young emerging writers and editors and arts workers, right? And it's like we just get pumped for every, like we get squeezed for every bit of work we can possibly do with little training and with little and just high expectations. Like, I don't think it should work like this. And so that's Absolutely. really the point of the program. It's, it's really like my intention with it is really to benefit the person who, who, who we are selecting because it's like there are things you need to know to be able to successfully navigate the space. And I want to, again, not to sound like anything, but I really feel strongly about empowering somebody to, 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 to know like to, to know these spaces, to be able to navigate them without, because they can cause harm. Like you know, you, I've I've gone out of jobs where I've just felt like I like had PTSD from them, and I and I know a lot of other people do, and I'm like that that's not right, that's not good for our mental health, that's not good for anything. Absolutely, um, so it's, it's really yeah. about that. Yeah, this uh, I love the focus on not only the you know literacy around editing skills and techniques and tips and tricks, but also as you said the kind of literacy around like navigating the industry, which can you know be very confusing and uh, arbitrary and, and strange, particularly when you're first entering in, into it. So it sounds like an absolutely incredible program. Um, I'm going to have to let you go because it's nearly time for me to get on out of here. But um, Hella, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and yeah, absolutely love the work that Jed does. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Uh, we're just talking there with Jed Founder and Editorial Director uh, Hala Ibrahim. We we're talking all about the 2021 Editorial Mentorship Program. You can find out more information if you do head over to jedpress.com. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.